This episode of Roboism is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. Thanks again to the Chicago Podcast Co-op for hooking up our sponsorships. You can learn more at chicagopodcastcoop.com. Hello, I'm Alex Cox, and welcome to the second season of Roboism. First off, we'd like to invite you to our live show at the Chicago Podcast Festival happening tomorrow, 9 p.m. at the Promontory. Savannah and I will be talking to Maria Ranahan about Cards Against Humanity's Science Ambassador Scholarship, which is a full tuition scholarship for women seeking an undergraduate degree in STEM. Tickets are only $10, and we'd be delighted to see you. Okay, this is part one of a two-part episode. Earlier this year, we interviewed roboticist Adrian Choi about the exhibit Robot Revolution, which is currently on tour and at the Franklin Institute of Philadelphia. In our next episode, we'll talk to him about his awesome DIY project, Robot Riot. In the meantime, again, please check out the tickets to our live show on Thursday, November 17th. That's probably today, hopefully, if you're listening to this, at the Promontory in Chicago. I'm Alex Cox. And I'm Savannah Million. And today we have a special guest, Adrian Choi. Hello. Hello, world. Adrian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yay. So Adrian uh, is here representing two different groups, I think. Um, first of all, he works at the Museum of Science and Industry. Uh, what is your title? My title is Lead Robot Specialist. Yes. Wow. That's the coolest title <laughs> in the world. I'm very jealous. Like I was expecting a cool one, but not like that cool (laughs) so yeah can you talk a little bit about uh your work at msi yeah so i started with msi uh last february with um the development of robot revolution so robot revolution actually took five years to develop because um it's just such a crazy exhibit so the idea behind robot revolution is that it's a snapshot of where robotics is currently uh so it's not really about sci-fi it's not a history of robots it's not it's somewhat about where it's going, but it's mostly about here's where robotics is now. And naturally, it being the Museum of Science and Industry, it's very uh, interactive. So we have 40 robots from eight different countries and 35 different companies. And for the most part, you can interact with them or watch them play games like soccer. Uh, you can play You can play tic-tac-toe <laughs> against Baxter from Rethink Robotics. Uh, and we just closed up the exhibit in Chicago, but we'll be moving it to Denver where it'll open at the Denver Museum of Science and Nature. And along the way, we'll be adding robots. So, for example, we'll have a new robot there that can solve Rubik's Cubes. Wow. Oh, my God. That's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Are you taking it anywhere else after Denver, or is that the only? We plan on touring it until 2020, and I can't comment on any of the possible venues after Denver. Oh, wow. So you're (laughs) going to be on the road for a while. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be. Yeah. Um, That's really exciting. It is. Cool. So uh, when you so you helped set up the exhibit um, and then you like worked on it while it was ongoing. Right. Right. So the exhibit staff at MSI developed it and they hired me a few months before it opened. Um, They needed me to do some of the technical setups some reprogramming, uh, making sure the robots work after we uncrated them from Japan and Poland and everything. Um, But yeah, it helped out with a little bit of the setup and contacting all the companies and making sure that all our mad fever dreams can actually work and that they'll survive <laughs> 10 school groups a day. Yes. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, that Paro seal looked a little a little dirty. <laughs> Paro is my favorite. And Same. I, I love I love Paro so it much. It looked like he was a lot of people's favorite. Very, there's a lot 
a lot, a lot of people petted him. Uh, so good. Savannah did not want to pet Pero because germs, <laughs> because germs. But I, I went right in there. Um, I, I just have been such a fan of that robot and the ideology around um, the development of it. Definitely, because uh, during setup, I mean, setup was extremely stressful. Um, yeah. I learned that theater people are fierce and they are not to be crossed. They are <laughs> tough cookies and they get the job done more so than like a lot of engineers I've ever met. But there were a lot of nights where we were just there until midnight. Oh, wow. Like making sure everything worked. Yeah. But Paro is a funny cookie. So for you out there that don't know, <laughs> Paro's a robot that's designed to look like a baby harp seal. It was designed by a Japanese company called Intelligent Systems. And um, it's a therapeutic robot. So the whole idea is that you can have animal therapy in places where you can't normally bring animals. So in some situations like hospitals, you can't normally bring a dog in or something. Right. But Paro's there. And you can bring in Paro and he'll react to you. He will talk about robot pronouns in a bit. <laughs> yeah. Paro will react to how soft or hard you pet it, uh, where you pet it, stroke its whisper, uh, whiskers, uh, whether or not it's light or dark in the room. But sometimes we would leave Paro on in the gallery while we were setting up, and we would forget that we left Paro oh, on. Oh, no. And late at night, you would hear Paro whimper because you're not paying enough attention to Poor it. Paro. Oh. But Paro got me through some dark times in the exhibit. There were, there were some times where I just needed a Paro break, so... Yes, therapy robots work. That's so sweet. Uh, what was your favorite robot to watch people interact with? Um, that's, oh man, there's so many dimensions to that question. Because <laughs> um, there there's a lot of touch screens and there's a lot of joysticks and buttons in the exhibit. Right. And you can definitely see differences between the generations in terms of comfort level and how they reacted. So are kids more comfortable with robots or adults? I don't think either are yet, but I think if we train the next generation to be comfortable, mm. and you can tell that through like touch screens. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever been to like one of these new, you know, fancy Burger Kings where they have those crazy soda fountains where <laughs> you can make like diet vanilla orange Coke, like anyone past the age of like 25 will not understand how to operate those machines. This is true. I had the worst time getting water out of one of those ones. <laughs> And but, I consider myself technologically savvy. So. Aren't right. you 22, 23? No, I'm 25. Oh, we're the same age. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought it was. Um, yeah, I noticed that when I went... Uh, I noticed that when I w went to the exhibit, like the kids were all over the touch screens and there were a lot of, you know, dads like, oh, look at they're doing soccer. Um, and I just really thought that contrast was super interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's even to the point where kids don't recognize screens as non touch screens. They don't even know what to do with joysticks. And it's oh, the complete sure. opposite with oh, wow. older adults. So we really yeah. reared in this next generation to identify all screens as touch screens. And they have no idea what to do with like actual other haptic, <laughs> you know, control devices. And I think the same will be for a generation where like the moment we get consumer robotics out where we try to make it normal, the current like adult consumer market will have no idea what to do. Kind of like how, you know, mom and dad and grandpa and grandma have no idea how to work that iPad. You got them for Christmas. Right. But <laughs> by the time the little kids, you know, that grew up with a Roomba instead of like a St. Bernard dog <laughs> come to be of, you know, consumer age. Like, that'll be normal for them. Right. So you kind of have to train the next generation of consumers to like your product, which I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting design. Well, I wonder, because technology moves so fast, too, um, if it's just going to, like, like touchscreens are going to be obsolete by the time 
these kids are adults anyway. Right. But it's almost like, are you designing to meet your market or are you training your next market? Yeah. This conversation comes a lot like sort of in the Apple press and Apple products because a lot of stuff that they make, it's like, all right, you you made your phone even thinner. I get it. But you got that little camera protruding and it's, it breaks so easily. Um, or something like the iPad Pro, which I have sitting next to me because I love it so much. And um, I don't know. I think it's... Uh, it's weird because like the Macintosh, like in the 80s, that was where things were going. Um, and now I think like iPhones and iPads and, and I mean, any touchscreen, that's where um, stuff's going. And that's what kids recognize. Like you said, like kids don't want their own computer. They want their own iPad or phone. Yeah, just seeing how people react is uh, really interesting because uh, the younger seem to be a little bit more comfortable with robots, but a lot of them are very familiar. Like some of them operate exactly like RC cars, which most people nowadays have operated. Right. Um, but I think what we're going to see, the thing that really brings robots into homes, aside from just making them more human proof, mm. um, is personality. So making them more approachable. So if any of you out there have seen Baxter, it's a big red robot uh, made by Rethink Robotics. Um, oh, we're a fan of Baxter. Yeah. yeah um, We'll and post a photo of Baxter in the notes, too. Please don't post that gif of it cheating at tic-tac-toe. <laughs> um, so Baxter in the exhibit at Robot Revolution plays tic-tac-toe. Um, sometimes he cheats. Yeah. We, are, we are working on that. <laughs> um, I think it's really endearing that he cheats. Yeah. I like it. It's a feature, <sighs> not a bug. <laughs> we we like each other for our perfections, but we love each other for our flaws. Aww. And that's what I'm going with. But <laughs> Baxter does... So Baxter's modus operandi is you can actually train Baxter what to do by physically moving his arms. So if you want him to pick things off a conveyor belt and put them in a box, you simply grab his wrist, tell him where to pick things up from, move his wrist over to where to drop them off. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but basically anyone can become a robotics programmer um, in like a 15-hour class session instead of having people, you know, firing, say, low-skill labor, quote-unquote, and hiring roboticists. So it's more about making American labor more feasible and, you know, having people with transferable still, uh, skills stay in the job market. Um, there's a few other robots on the market like Baxter, but they're typically just these cold, unendearing robot arms. And Baxter's been selling, like, hotcakes from what I've heard in the he robotics industry. A right, friendly face. Right. He has a mm -hmm. face. He has a personality. He gives you, like, a weird tilted eyebrow if, like, an <laughs> error pops up versus these other robots that look like, you know, any robotic arm you've ever seen. And I've heard from a lot of customers that, I mean, Baxter's pretty much become a part of the crew. He's become a pet. They put hats on him. And <laughs> I think... Like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> right. And I think that the next major revolution in robot design, outside of making sure that you don't need a full team of robot specialists on board to keep constantly fixing them, like in Robot Revolution, <laughs> is to make them approachable. Because I think once people take the Apple approach to product design with robots... That's when you'll really see them in the home. If you made Roomba cuter, I'm sure it would, you know, sell it's like hotcakes. Yeah. Like, and just have it be more R2-D2, less Roomba. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I would love that. I would like one. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm kind of considering doing, like, a study on robot-human interaction and how people approach them. Um, just, like, taking notes in the exhibit because it's very strange to see people interact with technology from all sorts of different backgrounds and generations. Yeah. 
That yeah. is really fascinating. Like I, I didn't really think about it so much like that in, in terms of like culture and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think when I was at the exhibit, I was like super o- overstimulated by all the robots and I wasn't paying attention <laughs> to anybody else. <laughs> um, I know there are a lot of um, like MSI is a huge draw for people in Chicago. Did you what did you see in terms of like diversity and what do you think um, like are Americans more or less comfortable with robots than other countries? You think I think in general, I didn't see too many differences. So um in terms of the crowds we attracted, we attracted a lot of families, a lot of um, parents mm-hmm. with younger children. I'm talking more like under the age of eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of school groups, elementary school. Um, a lot of tourists. Um, not a whole lot of quote-unquote millennials, and I hate that word. <laughs> <laughs> um, we went. Yeah. <laughs> millennials um, represent. Oh, gross. But <laughs> the younger kids were a little overstimulated. They really just wanted to press buttons and see what would happen. You know, God bless them. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> A lot of the parents seemed a little creeped out by them. There were some that, like, they were RC cars and like, oh, that's cute. But then when it got to the more humanoid ones or the ones that reacted and played tic-tac-toe and had signs of, you know, quasi-intelligence, um, I saw a lot of discomfort with that. Wow. Interesting. Things where it's like, it's going to do its job, but you can't control exactly how it'll do its job. Like a toaster, mm. you set it to, you know, darken your toast to a certain shade. But, like, with a robot, it's like clean the house but i'm not going to tell you exactly how to do that like yeah, i'll let unexpected. you yeah beep boop and crunch the numbers and you do that <laughs> um and things yeah um a little bit of discomfort in the older crowd mostly because they couldn't fathom it um some people because it is a snapshot of where we are with robots now uh, i did occasionally get a few guests that were kind of disappointed like oh they're just not like walking around outside of their cages willy-nilly and it's like <laughs> Oh. Well, not only would they not last a day. <laughs> People like, are terrible. People, right. Yeah. Um, there's that. Yeah. saw what we did to a hitch bot. In terms of like aptitude, um, I didn't really notice one country being more like into it than the other. Like we got tourists from all over the world, mm-hmm. um, especially the Asian countries. Um, but none of them seemed to show any signs of... Uh, more comfort, more discomfort, things like that. Yeah. Uh, we drew in a lot of engineers, and they just wanted to, like, throw curveball questions at, about everything. <laughs> so, I mean, you can usually tell who the engineers are because you can see what they're looking at versus, like, everyone else. Everyone right. else looks at the faces. They're looking at the joints and the motors. and Oh, funny. Yeah. You can usually tell, like, what a person does just by how they look at, like, parts of the exhibit around the museum. Like, you can tell who's a nurse when you walk into the anatomy exhibit. Right. And things like that. Oh, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Humans. Humans. Can also be interesting sometimes. <laughs> Not as interesting as robots, but maybe that's just us. Do um, kids really like, uh, I, I really enjoyed the little, the, the cute interactive, <laughs> would you call it interactive drone exhibit? Like the little little drone show? Um, are g- kids comfortable with drones? Like, do they have the same perspective of like, ah, scary drones that most adults have? Or are they just like cool flying helicopter robots? I think most kids aren't aware of what's going on with drones from a military sense. I did get a few cheeky kids in the exhibit that were like, which one of these robots are killing people in the desert across the ocean? Oh my God. Like literally, like super cheeky questions. And then I'd point them to like the search and rescue robots or the robots, the drones that like dive near the surface of the water over the ocean to measure like whale breath 
when <laughs> like they breach and shoot up water out of their spout. Yeah. Like cool. I I turned it to a more peaceful yeah topic of discussion, but uh yeah, a lot of kids aren't really aware of the implications of drones about spying and warfare. Um to them it was just a really cool toy. Oh, um, which is I'm really glad. <laughs> and the drone zone show was um for those of you who haven't seen the exhibit. Uh, we do have uh, some museum facilitators that fly a little parrot mini drone, and they talk about um, the drone, why a drone is a robot, the definition of a robot. They show off a few tricks that the drone can do, show off that it is a smart machine and just not an RC helicopter. For example, they do a little demonstration where they have someone try to drop the drone, and it'll stop just short of hitting the floor. It's a, oh, it's a pretty cool. good interactive, and it gets the audience engaged. And at the end of it, they talk about what drones are doing in the world, so they skip over the predator <laughs> drones using the war on terror but they talk about um how harvard's developing uh mini bee drones that could possibly pollinate flowers or drones that go out for search and rescue missions to find people or to survey disaster zones and things like that nice. so that's super exciting yeah um you me- you mentioned something interesting that they uh talked about what defined a robot so well, you are a robotics expert uh, what define what makes something a robot and not just a machine? And that's a very good question. Savannah and, and I talk about it a we lot. We discuss this. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's an it's a machine that completes an automated process without um, clumsy instruction. That's kind of a clumsy definition. But really, what what's different about that and say um, an air conditioner that? you know, detects the temperature in the room and turns on or off based on that to achieve the set temperature. And to me, there's really no difference. I think that maybe in a decade or two, robots will be like a kind of an archaic, outdated term versus just uh, automation, like automated machines. Mm -hmm. So machines that do a task. I mean, if you look at a lot of robots today, like uh, some of the bomb sniffing robots, they're really just RC cars with Um, arms attached to them and sensors and what do you define as a smart machine what don't you so what's different between say um, a robot like Roomba that scurries around your floor and detects whether or not the carpet's clean based on little dirt sensor it has versus say a factory line that can detect when things are going down its conveyor belt and it knows when to like push it into a new tray when it detects an object's going by a lot of roboticists say that they know what a robot is when they see it yeah. Oh, it's porn. Cool. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, oh, gosh. Oh, geez. But, yeah, I think automation will be the term that replaces the term robotics in the future, just because, really, when you think of robots, you would say that a factory line isn't a robot, it's a machine. A smart toaster that knows when your toast is done perfectly is a machine or an appliance, not a robot. Right. And I think people just lump robots into the category of, it's useful like an appliance, but there's no umbrella term for it, like fridges or toasters. It does a job that wasn't really covered by any of that before. Yeah, I wonder if we'll start to reserve the word robot for um, smart machines that are humanoid-like. That's what I was thinking. That's ju- like kind of how we use it now. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, even drones kind of a weird term because right. is it something that you remote control? Is it something that has smart sensors? Is it as simple as an RC toy helicopter i mean even the legal terms for that are extremely vague yeah so i think just because we're in this weird sci-fi rush with robots like we're gonna hang on to that word for a while but i think realistically in the future once um this technology is more available and you know visible because robots really are all around us i mean probably 
a lot of things in the room we're sitting in right now were made on automated factory lines or had to use like had some sort of robotic application involved with it mm-hmm. i mean and you're looking at robots everywhere nowadays every time there's an earthquake or um el nino we send out drones and robots to survey things um robots are already at work in society they're just hiding in the background at the moment yeah so i think once they're more visible we'll come up with a less vague term for them do you think um that there's going to be sort of any blowback when humanoid robots just become more common so i'm not a fan of bipedal robots more from a practical sense Mm -hmm. because um walking on two legs is very difficult i mean it's difficult for humans we don't have a lot of balance compared to quadruped you know Mm -hmm. animals um yeah we got the use of our hands to use tools and everything but we can't run as fast we don't balance as well uh the same thing for robots really the only reason i would see having robots look like humans and move like humans is because if we wanted robots to uh, work with us and collaborate with us we want them to be able to move through our environment instead of redesigning our environment for them Mm -hmm. so let's take a Roomba for an example it can't go up and down stairs Um, but if you had a humanoid robot that could walk upstairs you know on two legs that would be great because it could go up uh, staircases and near hallways you could make something like Big Dog which you've probably seen in the news that huge clunky horse looking robot yeah Uh, but it wouldn't be able to go through narrow hallways or anything so having something that could, you know, walk up and down stairs, carry power tools, even sit in the driver's seat of a car, um, that would be good because then we wouldn't have to redesign our houses and offices just so we could have a new fancy appliance. That would be completely impractical. Right. Um, in terms of how we view that from a moral perspective and like a social perspective, I think there will be blowback. I think people will start questioning the ethics of it. Um, I it's hard to say whether AI will beat like the mechanics of bipedal walking. Yeah. Because AI is getting pretty up there. I don't think we'll have anything close to a machine with personality soon per se. Mostly just smart things that that will be used for marketing be like, "Hey, you are a woman between the ages of 11 <laughs> and 23 and you're wearing this color, which means you are probably interested in this product. So I'm going to display this ad to you." Oh yeah. I mean, I think AI is going to be used mostly for like marketing in like the stock market before it'll ever be used for like a really smart creepy furby (laughs) (laughs) this is a question uh that i like to ask everyone is do you think the singularity will come around in our lifetime and do you think it will be peaceful (laughs) oh boy All right, we are going to leave you on that note before we release part two. Thank you again to Adrian, the Museum of Science and Industry, and Harrow, our delightful robotic seal friend. We hope to see you tonight at our live show. Please come to the Chicago Podcast Festival. It's the first year it's happening, and we're so excited to be a part of it. This has been another episode of Roboism. And as always, thank you for listening.
Pilots envy my life. I have places to go, people to see. I should be optimistic. I have no eyes inside.